Hello and welcome. This is Being Human. I'm Jo Frost and in today's episode, my co-host Peter Linus and I are chatting with academic and author of A War of Loves, David Bennett. Just before the summer, we caught up with David over Zoom. Forgive us, thanks to the limitations of Zoom, there are moments where the audio is less than great, but hopefully you'll find the quality of the conversation easily breaks through as we chat through being human, being gay, being celibate, and what desire does to our lives and our stories. I hope you enjoy it. Hello and welcome to you both. It's lovely to see you. Wonderful to be here. Yes, I'm excited for this. It's going to be great. So for those of you who don't know, David Bennett hails from Sydney, Australia, studied journalism and then international relations, moved to Oxford to pursue his studies in theology and uh, trained as an apologist following his background as a sceptical atheist and anti-gay, anti-Christian gay activist. Let's get that the right way around. Um, studying now for his uh, PhD in theology at Oxford, he's the author of A War of Loves, and specialises in the relationship between queer theory, asceticism, and contemporary Anglican theology. There's so many words in there, especially around ethics. Uh, It's absolutely wonderful to have you with us, David. How are you? And how is life in lockdown treating you? It's going really well. I think probably the bio reflects uh, (laughs) the kind of, you know, uh, work that I'm doing, slaving away um, under lockdown conditions, trying to get this doctorate through um and i thought at the beginning of it all you know this would be a good time to write um you know and probe some of the questions in kind of queer theory being a celibate gay christian but it's actually been a really tough time and you know uh i've yeah it's been more of a wrestle than i thought to get to where i am with the doctorate so happy to be kind of yeah, through to the kind of midsection of it and coming out the other side. Uh, but yeah, I'm really excited to talk to you about being human. My thesis is really, you know, aligned with that topic, especially like the, the nature of desire and that, its role in knowing God. Um, and yeah, that's obviously a very live question that's kind of simmering underneath, underneath a lot of the kind of, you know, media scape uh, at the moment. So thanks for having me and it's really good to be on with you guys it's wonderful to have you i mean i first came across you in your book a war of loves and we want to kind of maybe springboard from there and then get into some of the cultural conversations and um, because uh we met actually at a conference at an event an elam event i think as i recall but that book really challenged me provoked me um rather than reading about i mean this is your book a war of loves your own journey in that seeing this as a subject or a topic to engage with it was your story and then it was pushing back into my story do you want to tell us a little bit about how you kind of came to write that book initially maybe and and a little bit more about your story for those who don't know you as well yeah so i really wrote the book because i noticed that there was a big hole in the middle of conversation around you know something massively missing a conversation around sexuality and faith and there weren't many books that were bridging kind of the divide between the gay world and um, the Christian, particularly evangelical world at the time. And I was passionate about gay people being able to understand why Christians believe some of the things they did and actually gaining a deeper, more empathic 
understanding of that and being able to respect it, even if they might disagree, but also for Christians to understand what it's like to be gay and to stop trying to say, you know, explain that away with simple um, and sometimes quite strange theories. <laughs> and so I yeah, had to kind of bridge between this like highly contentious issue, um, but it takes you right from when, you know, I was a young 14 year old wrestling with my sexuality raised by agnostic atheist parents uh, in a Christian, going to a Christian school, um, then through all my kind of spiritual experimentation and then um, my kind of atheist years where I like read, you know, Richard Dawkins and was very much a convinced atheist for about five months. <laughs> and then, <laughs> um, then kind of journeyed into the more postmodern realm, which was much more profound for me and did that at university and then got involved in political activism um, and, you know, you say you're a gay activist at the age of 19, because that's kind of what you do. But, you know, how convincingly I was a gay activist, um, I thought I was. But, you know, it's that kind of thing of you're young, you're progressing towards this kind of destiny of going into politics and fighting for gay rights. And then at that very moment, kind of when that was reaching a fever pitch, I met Jesus Christ in a pub when a girl prayed for me in the gay quarter of Sydney. And so that's kind of the the progress of the book right through to becoming a side a uh, Christian. So side a Christian for people who don't understand that is just someone who thinks gay marriage is fine, um, compatible with being a Christian um, and would pursue that and try to make the church conform to that. Um, and then a side B Christian, someone who doesn't think that's an option, but doesn't, you know, try to change themselves or accepts themselves as gay, but redirects that towards other forms of intimacy that are compatible with the gospel. Um, so it takes you not just a journey of going from atheist to Christian, but from, you know, side A to side B, which is not a journey that many people have covered in Christian literature, which is ironic because so many Christians do hold to the orthodox view and yet that hasn't been represented. So there were so many different things that felt needed work. And I just tried to kind of throw a little pebble <laughs> at, at that um, in the book. And while I was doing a master's and everything else going on. So um, I was very pleased to get that out and see that it's touched people's lives and quite humbled by how God's used it. I love to say, I think it's uh, it was in the Oxford in the bookshop. You had it, uh, it was a few months ago, but it was in LGBT History Month. It was one of the five books that was being profiled in in your local bookshop. And I think for me, that was the interesting thing. It was the missional edge to it. It was a different language that challenged me to think as a Christian, but I could see it was challenging the culture to engage differently. Uh, and it's maybe not been totally accepted, but in certain spaces, it was being accepted as an LGBT book in a different way than many Christians writing into that subject would have been accepted. I find it's the missional edge that I love about it and gets me excited about it. Well, my, my thesis is entitled Queering Queer. <clears throat> and what I'm really trying to say is basically on queer theory's own terms, being a celibate gay Christian is actually more queer than being a married uh, gay person. Um, and so that's quite controversial and actually... Um, I think that throws up the conversation to start having deeper, you know, and more like a closer conversation to ideas that maybe the Christian community has been a bit afraid to engage with um, when actually it doesn't need to. And I actually think that queer theory itself is quite 
um, useful for Christians because we have such a deep doctrine of the fall and we don't think that we can construct our identities and, you know, save ourselves and understand our bodies perfectly with our own reason and capacities that we need the help of grace. And so I actually think there's a kind of crazy overlap between queer theory and like kind of Augustinian or evangelical Christianity. And I'm really excited to see that start to happen and, there are people who are starting to write about that. And I'm hoping to be part of that kind of wave to help us have a better conversation, a deeper conversation that can get us out of this weird culture war that I just think is so damaging. Um, yeah. And hopefully it will lead to people knowing Jesus Christ and being able to reconcile their identities with Jesus, but also submit their identities to Jesus and his Lordship. Mm. Um, so, yeah. There's so much there. Um, let's pull back one step um, because you talked about queer theory and there were nods, but uh, let's just break that down for people. What is queer theory and how do we encounter it in our everyday? How does that bump into our world, into our culture today, do you think? Yeah. yeah. So what is queer theory and how do we encounter that in the everyday? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Fantastic question. So queer theory, you know, originates back in the kind of 1960s, 70s, when there was a whole kind of rise of a sexual revolution. And a lot of people were playing like ideological warfare, trying to kind of get new values, gay rights, you know, abortion, women's rights, that kind of stuff all kind of came to, to a fever pitch. And queer theory emerged out of a kind of more academic space where people were like, actually, we're less interested in that ideological battle and more interested in questioning the bedrock underneath the castle that everyone's fighting over. And actually, that's, let's queer kind of the foundations of you know, Western modernist understandings of sex and gender, but all sorts of subjectivities like race, everything else. Let's uncover bodies that have been covered over by kind of the sin of the West, if you like, and let's let them be heard, let them come to the surface so that they can challenge the kind of bigotry and prejudice in the ideological sphere where people are fighting, you know, conservative, liberal, all of that language. Queer theory is not so much interested in that identity politics. It's anti-identity politics. It's interested in what's happening underneath. Um, and so I think that's why I chose queering the queer because I want to go deeper. And I want to look at what actually has spurred on this kind of woke movement in our society that sees Christianity as the enemy um, rather than, you know, the source of actually liberation. And how can we actually show people that that's not the case, that Christianity and Jesus really is the source of liberation, um, which fits very much with my own journey. So, you know, you have figures like Judith Butler who, who d d dissects uh, the idea of sex and gender from each other as like the foundation of, of queer theory. What I'm saying in my doctorate is basically that there are a lot of ways that Christians have denied themselves in history that according to queer theory's own logic are actually quite queer. So being a holy virgin and not engaging in sex and as a woman or a man um, actually is quite queer. It's quite like strange to political landscape that Christians were living in at the time. Um, and so, 
yet those things are have been pushed out and seen as by queer the actual queer academy and queer society as not queer so i'm kind of trying to bring that up and say well look there's an aspect of christianity here that you can't refute that you need to see as deeply part of this and actually the liberation you're looking for is found in the holiness of jesus which is other which is strange which upsets the political landscape more than anything else so in following him we're actually doing what queer theory is looking for without paying some of the price that it does um so you know i believe in a created order i think god created our bodies i think that our capacity to understand them and our capacity to understand the created order is broken and we need grace to do it and so we it's a complicated thing <laughs> to do that and i think we rush past it too quickly um as christians and i'm just excited to see in this new time that we're in where some of these old certainties are being stripped away that we might actually be able to go deeper into the gospel rather than move on from it with progress yeah no i think it's fair to say as, as some people hear that they're kind of like whoa this guy's way out there on queer theory and uh, you know what this this queer seems like a subset and now you're saying actually that parts of the christian life are queer so I think some will get that. So we're just saying, so for example, the decision to maybe live a celibate life in response to God be whether heterosexual or same-sex attracted, either of those, that's a queer decision in our culture that's so obsessed by check, by sex, sorry, um, and the act of sex and our sexuality. Like, I guess I want to push after that kind of identity shaping thing as well, because you would describe as a gay celibate Christian um, yeah. That seems to freak everybody out <laughs> on all yeah. sides of that debate. We yeah. insist on holding those terms together to make sure that you know they can't be pulled apart. I'm just trying to get this. I guess for some people listening, this is going to be a, quite a big jump. Why? Why do you hold so tightly to that language? Uh, is maybe the first thing in this whole identity. How closely our identity gets linked up potentially with our sexuality. Is that not adopting the very culture you're trying to critique? Yeah, it's a really good question. Yeah, I think that we what we have to do as Christians is learn the language of the culture, and we've we've had a cultural pre, you know, dominance in a way as Christians where we've been able to just use our own language to talk about things. I think we're entering into more like an Augustinian age. You know, Augustine had to fight for the Christian faith, and it's like you know, wrote City of God to kind of refute the criticisms of many of the pagan Romans who were saying it's Christianity's fault that we're in this decline. And I think we're living in a similar moment where we've gone from being accepted and kind of building to then actually being harshly criticized. And so we have to go back what language is being used and how does the gospel actually apply? And I think for me, when I actually look at the language of queerness, otherness, alterity, like all this stuff, why be afraid of that? You know, holiness itself means utter alterity. It means you know, utter otherness. God is holy, 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 thrice holy. Now, do I think human queerness is like holiness? No, I think it's an unredeemed otherness. I think it needs to be redeemed, but it still has a value in, in, in witness. And, and it's God's holiness that then starts to redeem that and use it as witness. And so I think being a celibate gay Christ, Christian is almost like God taking my queerness and then using that as a, you know, a redeeming that and bringing that in as a witness that's powerful that others, the kind of idolatrous certainties that people cling to. 
I actually think Christian marriage, and this is going to be a controversial, I also think Christian marriage and the way that it's conceived by Paul is incredibly other to the way marriage is understood in our culture. And so I think there's also, you know, interesting work to be done there. I just think the resources we have as the church really are so deep and they teach us what being human really is and how to deal with the problem of human desire so much better than any of the secular resources we have. And so what I'm trying to do is connect those resources to what has often been seen as anti-Christian um, and finding that there's actually just really rich stuff there that we have to say as Christians in reply that I think can help the conversation move forward um, in a healthier way. Every time you say something, there's so much that I want to press into, especially around this idea of pursuing the other and yet seeking sameness, that actually there's something very powerful about um, wanting to be distinct and different, but also desperately looking for conformity. And I see that play out in our society all over the place. But actually, what you've just said, I want to press into more, which is this idea of the role of, of desire in being human. And you've mm. talked about the fact that that's, that's ultimately what you're looking at in your doctorate at the moment and the role of desire in knowing God. And I, I just want to press in, what are your thoughts around desire? We have a very desiring culture, a culture that idolizes desire, but also in Christianity, we have desire and worship and discipleship. How do these things play out in this fundamental question of what it means to be human? It's a fantastic question. There's so much to say about desire. I think what I would put my finger on is that in the kind of 17th century, there was an ascendant theology of desire that came largely from kind of Protestant Lutheranism and then was inflected through Calvinism and the reformed tradition that essentially saw human desire as selfish and something to get rid of. And God's desire um, as kind of God was just kind of desireless being. Um, and I think that's quite a dangerous way of understanding desire. And I think a lot of our culture is a kind of reaction to that Protestant theology. You can even see this sometimes in C.S. Lewis's thinking. If you read his books, he kind of puts Eros sometimes against Agape. I would want to completely say that's wrong. And that's produced a lot of issues where basically we suppress our sexuality in Christian culture. We don't talk about our desires. We see desire as a danger zone. We try to live in this weird purity culture that isn't really that biblical, um, but that I don't believe in purity and, you know, and, and being chased, but it, it's produced a form of kind of asceticism, a life of discipleship that, that, that is split. What I think we need to do is bring the love, love together again and understand that God gave us desires in the beginning as a create a created gift. But when Jesus comes into our life with grace, he can help us learn to steward that gift and rechannel that gift towards his kingdom and towards the good. And I think under bringing together our humanity with God's divinity and understanding how they're actually not in conflict with each other, but that God loves humanity and became human in Christ. That is just so profound for how we understand desire and how much God, you know, longed to commune with us through now the humanity of Jesus. I just find that so beautiful. And it's a sign that God loves every aspect of our humanity desires included. 
So rather than seeing desire as something that needs to be erased, deleted, discarded, see it's something that needs to be redeemed and reoriented towards good things. I think that, that for me was the key is rather than suppression or the erasing. So I think I was often the language in my growing up is you kind of suppress those things. You had to get, get them under control. There is an aspect of that, but it's much more in the sense of reorientating and redirecting them into something else. I think really importantly is actually the work of Sarah Coakley, who is has a kind of charismatic post-liberal Anglican woman writing about sexuality and God. And she talks in her books, New Asceticism, God, Sexuality, and the Self, about how there's this sub-Freudian narrative in our society that hates sublimation, thinks that sublimation is repression. But Freud himself actually didn't think that celibacy was a bad thing at the end of his life. He thought celibacy was a wonderful thing and that it was a successful form of sublimation, could be. And so we, it's really interesting how our culture has used the Freudian psychological backing to undermine celibacy and undermine Christian sexuality, when in fact Freud wasn't really against it at the end of his life. I think that's a really fascinating point that people should reflect on. Um, Hold on, su sublimation, because the running me is going to stop and try and Google sublimation. So sublimation so is like, I did, you know, you, you sublimate certain desires for a greater good, you know, um, to live something else out that's greater. Um, our culture absolutely hates sublimation and thinks that it's a form of repression and self-hatred. And you'll hear people say you're a celibate Christian, you're, you're, you've got internalized homophobia. Um, you know, that's that um, pseudo-Freudian uh, anthropology we have running in our culture that is just false, I think. Um, and even the best secular minds like Freud would, would say it's false. So you have that. And then you have Augustine. I've talked about this. I think Augustine is the theologian of the, of the body who tried to wrestle with lust and desire and how these things could be redeemed and provides resources for us as the church now to reflect on sexuality again and to reflect on how our bodies actually are after the fall and how we can live lives of, that are, are touched by grace. Because the danger for us is constantly stoicism. It's constantly this desire to repress the body, to be anti-body in the evangelical world, rather than say the body is broken but a gift and I'm called to steward this towards God. And I think Augustine helps us do that. Desire is a vital part of our knowing God and a gift that has been broken, but just, and a will which has been broken, but God through grace breaks in and does the work in us. So I think the danger constantly as well is that we become kind of trying to earn our salvation Christians, <laughs> trying to make ourselves will the right things rather than allowing this radical grace we've been given to do the work in us to procure desire for the good for God and enjoying the whole of creation. So a practical example is just when you're like with your friend and you want to be with them, but you want to be with them on your own terms. You want, you know, what you want with them. That's, that's you using them, you know, misusing them, instrumentalizing them. What Augustine would say is you, you need to enjoy God through them, which allows them to be free which allows them to be delighted in by you as a friend rather than controlled as the good you want to possess yourself. 
And it's interesting because our modern notion of romantic love is basically possession. It's basically trying to instrumentalize that person to get what I want and desire. And so I have to have a marriage and I have to have the right to be married. Otherwise I can't be human. Um, what Augustine says is that that's ridiculous. No, that's the abuse of a good. If you have God, he releases you from those chains and you can truly delight in that person because your ultimate weight of love is put on God and redeemed by God. So that person can go free. You don't need to be married to be whole. And I think that's the center of being a celibate gay Christian. That is the conviction at the center of it is I don't need sex and sexuality. I don't need those created goods to be whole. Actually what gives me the greatest, um, you know, peace is, is to love God and enjoy God and to, be able to give up things for that greater good um, and then receive them back from God in how they're meant to be delighted in rather than misused. So that's Augustine's very difficult to understand for us, but I think when we get in there and understand his work on desire, it's absolutely transformative in how we can create a desire culture that makes us more fully human, um, which is you know, to delight in God to enjoy him forever that's the chief end of man you know <laughs> that's what makes us human which is the irony of being human is actually the most human is enjoying god the most enjoying the being that is other than human <laughs> and that's the paradox i think right at the heart of of christianity which i think for me is the the idea that is most redemptive in all human knowledge so uh, there's two things that I want to pick up. Joe will probably have a question. I'm going to try and feed something back. So I think the body piece is that Augustine did have a high view of the body, as did the Bible. And it was Plato and others who had a lower view that the body was secondary and has caused a lot of problems. And you'll hear people sometimes come back to that as if there's a soul inside me that's key and this body is secondary. And that has actually fed into some of the problems in our world, I would say. And I think you're echoing that. And that's why we look to someone like Augustine had a better view on that. And also then that sexuality, which is then heavily linked to our bodies, linked and not same, but then the Christian church has struggled with a good articulation of sexuality, mm -hmm. as you've said, with, with someone like Lewis almost pitted eros, a sexual love against agape, a much more holistic love, uh, as if they're in conflict with each other, but actually with somebody like Augustine and the biblical text itself, we're saying, no, there is a right way to do that. We've called it before, we need to be careful of the utilitarian. I think you said instrumentalizing the same idea, seeing sex or parts of relationships as an instrument, something we use for ourselves and our culture. We've, we've, Joe and I have spoken before about friends. I mean, the only way in, the, in, in an episode of Friends you knew if a relationship worked is if you had sex, the ultimate kind of utilitarian or instrumentalizing, I would say, of relationship. It was for the, the sexual act was the only good thing about it. And we're saying no, that's deeply problematic. And it's a reorientation of that. Um, sorry, this is, that's, I'm just processing out loud here a little bit is, is what we're saying rather than the suppressing of our desires because anything else is going to get us into trouble. It's actually not biblical and it's not going to work. So hopefully exactly. I've, that's what I'm trying to, that's what I'm I, hearing, I one of the feedback. <laughs> one, of, one of the things that's very important though is that with Eros is that we understand that actually for the ancient kind of philosophers, Eros wasn't necessarily primarily sexual. Um Eros was more about like human hankering, craving to be part of the good, to participate in the good. And I think that aspect of Platonism is something that is very compatible with Christianity, 
even if or Plato, even if you know the low view of the body, the body being the kind of limit that needs to you know once we go through the mind and reason, we can kind of get to the spiritual. We don't believe that as Christians. We do believe in free reason, but it's like part of a whole package that God you know loves and has created. Um, yeah, so I think just those two other nuances are helpful as well in just thinking about like have I put eros against agape and have I got a deficient view of eros and the role of human creaturely desiring? I think I'm just so excited for people to realize like underneath everything is this incredibly powerful desire for God. It's actually more powerful than sex. It's more powerful than any other desire for any other thing. And that that is at the base of who we are as humans. And that is what will redeem. Once we let that desire for God in Christ, like go, it gives us power to live a life that is charged with love and charged with goodness. And I just find that incredibly beautiful. I don't think there's anything else in religious history that compels me any you know more. Um, it, it really is the deepest um, and most fundamental part of what makes us human. Amen. David, we could genuinely talk for hours. Um, I think we've barely even scratched the surface um, of what we uh, we could talk about. But but you've given us so much food for thought, especially around this the bedrock of what it means to be human is to desire after God. Um, your book, A War of Loves, is available uh, pretty much everywhere. Um, so uh, please do check it out if you haven't read it already. David, thank you so much for your time today. We've really valued having you on and hopefully we will catch up again with us for another uh, part of this conversation. That would be amazing. Thank you so much. And thanks for letting me go a bit deeper today um, and just kind of wrestle with some, some concepts. I hope it was a blessing for people. And there you have it. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. For more information about David, his book and his work, go to today's show notes. For more information about Being Human, check out beinghumanproject.co.uk, where you can find out all about what we're up to, previous seasons from the Being Human podcast, articles, resources, and information about what's coming next. Don't forget to subscribe to Being Human wherever you get your podcast. And until next time, take care and God bless. God bless.